This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Zadie Smith is one of the best writers of her generation. She's smart and funny, and she makes being smart seem really cool. In her new collection of essays, Feel Free, out now, she talks about Jay-Z and Get Out and Facebook and visual artists and classic books and family and Bieber. Yep, Justin Bieber. So I thought I should just email Zadie and say, hey, can we just talk about everything? And she said, yeah. This is a really fun one. Today, Zadie Smith on Toray Show. I've known her almost 20 years. I interviewed her for MTV2 when White Teeth was out. And it's been a thrill to watch Zadie grow and operate as a public intellectual, dropping great novels and dope essays and showing herself to just be a really interesting person to listen to. I mean, putting the awesomeness of her accent aside, in person, Zadie's as smart and as fun as her greatest books. And she's disarmingly humble in a way that just makes you want to root for her success. So settle in. I asked her to talk to me for an hour, and we sat there for two. We sat there in our studio at 78th and Broadway, and just, this is the most fun episode I've had yet. So, I'm proud to present Zadie Smith on Toray Show. So, let's talk about writing. What do you love about it? Um, I, I like it. I like having an, an artificial set task uh, to fill the, the day. Set by yourself, it's, it's that's pleasant. I mean, what else are you going to do? It's a it's a long life, <laughs> and I, I like the idea of a series of tasks I've set myself, completely unnecessary tasks that nobody mm-hmm. has to care about or. But I've set them a series of books in my mind, and then when they're done, I'll be done. I think everyone does that with their life. It's just writing is a very um, kind of formal way to do it. Mm. I, I can measure out the years this way. So, do you set day goal? Do you have, do you set goals? No, because if I did, I would be very frustrated. Um, so no. But I, I just have hopes every day. But I haven't written in months and months. You know, at the moment I'm in a, yeah. I'm reading. I'm in a 
like period of reading and preparing but um preparing to start another one yeah but it's much more important for me to be able to read every day than write every day i i can live without writing but if i don't get to read i get very antsy really yeah so how many hours a day are you reading at the moment all all hours that i'm not uh raising children so you drop them off and you go read go until you go pick them up. And then I lie on a sofa for about six hours reading and then I pick them up again. And then after they're in bed, you read again. And I read a bit more and I go to sleep. Yeah, that's my life. What at the you, moment, it's not normally uh, like that, but at the moment, that's it. Yeah. What are you reading? I'm reading a lot of stuff about uh, the 1800s for something I have to write. So it's just a lot of research, I suppose. Nonfiction. Nonfiction, yeah, for the most part. Some novels too. And sometimes I. Um, use the bedtime reading with the children as surreptitious research. They don't realize it, but oh, there's a reading. reason we're reading David Copperfield. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they don't need to know that. <laughs> what do you love so much about reading? Uh, I, I, I read a really good book recently by a guy called Francis Buffett, a British writer, who said um, that actually it's a kind of addiction and... The strange thing about it is it's a sanctioned addiction. So nobody tells you off for reading a lot when you're a kid, particularly if you're yeah. from a working class home or, or an immigrant home, as I was. Everybody's very enthusiastic about it because it seems like a good sign. Um, but what he said, in his case, he's also a reading addict. He had a very ill sister who died when he was young. And reading for him was a way of escaping the world. And I think that's always basically true. I don't think children who read as much as I did when I was a child are reading because they're delirious with joy about mm, their lives. Mm. It is a kind of addiction. It is a kind of escapism. And, and you realize that when, like, even to come to this podcast, I got maybe five heavy books in my bag. What, what did I imagine was going to happen on the 22-minute <laughs> subway what did, ride? What did you bring? Uh, what have we got? Um, Inside the Victorian Home, uh, a book about historical uh, 19th century court case uh, and lots of I mean a load of uh, heavy hardback books so um, uh, it, it, I think reading for me is just the way I am in the world that's how I operate and, I, and what was interesting about Francis' book is f the first time I'd heard it expressed as a kind of personal flaw you know because if, if every spare moment you have you want to be somewhere else or inside a book or that's that is a little problematic, actually. It's not that different from the people who want to get high or <laughs> want to be on Instagram every moment of the day. It's all about not being where you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I guess I was raised that way, very focused on being elsewhere. So when you're in your reading jag, yeah. are you bouncing around or is it just like one book and finish it and then the next That's book? That's what I'm trying to do, but then there's all the books, you know, novels and books that aren't to do with work, books by friends, books that are meant to be reviewed, books, I mean, you know this, beat. So it's a very tall tower of, of obligatory reading as well. So I kind of mix it all in. I, I don't, I'm happiest when I'm, when I'm doing that, you know. For me, it's a kind of comforting place to be. I find myself, like, get excited about a book, and inevitably, before I finish it, something else more exciting emerges. I think this is a common problem these days, right? <laughs> Either new or just something that I've discovered, and I must put this aside and read this yeah, right now. Yeah, that happens a lot. And never can I finish that without, the, oh my God, I must read this right, right now. And I feel that, but, but I notice now, exactly because of that distraction, which I have feel too, that it's a really great novel when I, when I don't stop, you know. Mm. I don't want to be anywhere else when I'm really 
inside it and focused on it. Um, I take that as a sign of greatness now because it is very easy to step aside for a million other things. Yeah. So you read while you write? Yeah, sure. How do you, what is, like, how do, you do that and what are you doing? Um, well, if I'm, if I'm writing a novel, I'm, I'm learning or stealing from, from other people, you know, all the time. Um, and just sometimes, because writing is such a, a strange uh, ground zero thing, like every time you sit down to write something new, it's entirely possible that you can't write at all. I mean, it's not, it's not like <laughs> piano playing, you know, like a skill which is permanent and you can pass on, or even rapping or where you know you can do something. Writing, every time you start, it could just be awful. <laughs> and, and that can happen at any time. And as we all know from writers we love who write terrible books or terrible mm. essays or terrible stories, that's always a possibility every single time you sit down to write. And for that reason, I think people find it quite stressful to do, me too. But when I'm reading other people's work, part of it is... It can be just schadenfreude, like, oh, this is terrible, and that makes me feel better, like, oh, well, if he's published and he's awful, so maybe I should, it'll be okay. Or it can go the other way where you're, something is so wonderful it kind of as, it inspires you to meet it at its level or try to meet it. And sometimes it's just about reading something that gets you going, that has a kind of rhythm to it, which, which then transfers into your work and you're able to write a bit more fluidly that day. Yeah, it, I mean, from your description of... I imagine you at the computer, yeah, uh, with all these right open books right. around, and it seems like like a painter. And I need a little more blue, so I dip into this. Right. But it's like I need a little more of I don't know what. So I'll read a little of David Foster Wallace, right. or a little less of this. So I'll read a little. Is it like that? It is like that, but I I do think as you get older, you have to uh, get a little more confident. You know that you can sit down in front of that blank page and it's not going to be a disaster today. When I was younger, I was a lot more anxious and a lot more in need of um, textual support from mm. all areas. Um, and sometimes it's just about being in a certain mood. Like when I was writing in Swing Time, I wanted to be kind of surrounded by by black culture, you know, one way or another. So it was mm. about books and music and paintings and I wanted to be in that mind state, you know. And now I'm writing a book which is in England in you know 150 years ago, and I want to be in that mind state. It's about being subsumed in something mm. for a while. That's part of the pleasure of doing it. In fact, I don't. I get nervous for performance, live performance. Right. I don't get nervous the way you're describing for writing. Like it may turn out bad. Right. Because I'm like, we have time. We can edit it a hundred more times. <laughs> know. You know, we have another week or a month or like, there's time. But when you perform, it's this is it. No, that's it. And I'm, when I see, like, my brothers are performers, when I see them doing that, I, um, I'm glad that I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I guess my anxiety is different. It's about um, being delusional. I think that's what writers are always frightened of, that you've, you've lost the ability to see whatever you're doing clearly, objectively, and as it is. Um, that's always my concern, that I'm writing something that I think is good, and in fact it's bad. It's a simple childish <laughs> anxiety, but it <laughs> preoccupies me a lot of the time. <laughs> I, I feel like, like, I guess like, the Esprit d'Escalier is what I'm 
would most be afraid of. And I'm trying to imagine what will I want to have said right. after it's published? Right. And can I think of that now? Right. So I, and like find a way to like <laughs> drain myself and like imagine that. And it's hard. It's hard. It can be hard. And, and then I guess nowadays there's also the added idea of a, of an insta- instantaneous audience with mm. strong opinions. Um, I also have to try and not think about that <laughs> when I'm writing. So, I'm trying not to think about that, yeah. So are you in agony while you're going through it? No, no. I, like at the moment, um, but I think most writers would say but before the novel starts is a time of great joy, you know, where everything <laughs> seems possible. Everything's possible. Yeah, and it, it seems like such a beautiful novel in your mind and you begin it with such high spirits. It definitely gets a little trickier towards the middle and um, there is never that sense like... Uh, like if I see my brother doing stand-up or, or the times when I used to sing, uh, there are moments in the middle of things like that where you, you just let go and, and let instinct take over. Mm. And uh, the more you do that when you sing, the more you do that when you're on a riff in comedy, uh, the better it can be. I, I, for me, writing is very, not, it's very uh, rarely like that. The person who's let let's go at the typewriter or the laptop and is happily banging away thinking things are going terrific. That's usually the passage of a novel where you're like, oh dear God, no. <laughs> someone, someone should have told you to stop there. It's a different, there's too much consciousness is, is necessary at all times, you know? You have to be aware and, and on top and, and looseness is, is hard to achieve in writing, I think. It happens sometimes. There are beautiful moments. Like if you're reading someone like, I don't know, Langston Hughes, there are moments in those poems where I... F- feel this incredible freedom line by line but but my husband's a poet and I know that even when you read that and you feel it it's usually been gone over a thousand times you know mm. even what seems natural and fluid is artificial writing is kind of an artificial art form artificial in that it's it pretends to be of one moment but it's right, not right it seems temporal when you're reading it like this thing beautiful soaring thing is happening in the moment but as you say it's been gone over and over and over and it's calculated in a certain sense to get a, a reaction out of you a certain reaction so it's um it's different than the performing arts where there's a fluidity you know between audience and performer i love the tinkering yeah the tinkering is my favorite bit for sure not the making my students always talking about creativity and being creative and that's the part i really hate <laughs> <laughs> it's afterwards it's the editing the smoothing out, the perfecting of something. Yeah, That's very satisfying. And I love to do it for myself or for anybody else. I'm always, anybody wants to send me something to edit, I'm always happy. Yeah. Because the only thing you're doing at that point is making something better. Whereas in the creative stage, you have no idea whether you're making it better or worse. Right. Anything could be happening. <laughs> no, when you find, when I find like those moments, like the 10th edit, the 15th edit, okay. and I'm like, Oh, if I remove that sentence, yeah. or if I move that graph there, right. or this idea is, you know, break it into two and like, ah, oh, I feel it's this so release. Better. And I didn't right. even know that I was stressed about it. Yeah. But it's also amazing that you can read something 15 times and not see that obvious right. cut. That's right. the part which is kind of anxiety making because for various reasons, vanity, success, uh, boredom, all kinds of things can make you increasingly blind to that page and that edit, you know? Um, I remember the novel that I published, which nobody should read. Um, I was in Jamaica. I used to go to Jamaica to Rock House for 
December to to finish it, but I didn't have children then, and I didn't have a wife then. I could do that. Why are we even talking about this amazing time? Right. So, and I and I and I finally had it. Like I had like, you know, like three quarters of it written, and I had like an outline for where everything was going, and it was like this one moment. I finally had it like all in mind at once, but it's like really mentally hard to hold the entire novel in your mind at once. And I remember feeling like I have lost my mind, but I will recover this book (laughs) out of it, but I have now gone crazy. I think uh, keeping a whole novel in your mind gets harder and harder. It's easiest for young people, I think. I really, when I think about debut novels, first novels, I see the energy and flexibility of a young mind able to keep the whole thing together. It's no coincidence that older people in their 70s and 80s, the novels get smaller and smaller. You know, They tend to get narrow, <laughs> somewhat anemic. It, it is hard to keep all those balls in the air at the same time. Mm. Um, but now this period, like the 40s, 50s, seems to me a very good time for a writer. You know, You still have your brain pretty much, but you also have a little more control. Um, it's a good moment. Well, the, the challenge for us as 40-something, oh, yeah. soon to be more yeah um is that we have these families yes and and we both have young children right. and i mean i used to get a lot done in the afternoon and now they're about to come home at three thirty, yeah, four o'clock and done. they're in my hair until eight thirty, yeah. and i'm like oh, i'll never get that time back no it'll never come back but I, i've been reading a lot of books about dickens recently who had 10 children mm. and was very um I'm not, I'm not saying he was a wonderful father, because he wasn't, but he loved family. He had a kind of uh, fascination with domestic life. And he would write everything pretty much between 7 a.m., 8 a.m., which, of course, begs the question of who was with the children mm-hmm. at that hour. But at about 2 o'clock, he was done. He wanted to see the kids. He wanted to go out for dinner. He wanted to have fun. He was, he was the man who liked life, you know. And when he traveled, he took them all in a crazy caravan, like, Five different carriages to Paris or to Rome, ten kids, God knows how many nannies, cooks, and everybody came together. So I, I think it is possible to write in this uh, chaos, and I do think the hours necessary are exaggerated. Like since I had kids, everything I've written, I've written basically between ten a.m. and two thirty. You know, mm. but but that ten a.m. and two thirty has to be then really undisturbed, like no email. No internet. That's a lot of hours, in fact, if you're not doing anything else. So this is one of the things that you have talked about that really moves me positively and negatively when you talk about protecting your writing time. Yes. And how do you, how do, you do that? But, but only, only when they're in school. Like the previous idea, like I, when I went to college, I met a lot of people who were the children of so-called creative people, artists, writers, and the stories they told, and these are stories from the 70s and 80s, were completely horrifying to me. You know, these, like, grandiose assholes who would tell their children to their faces, look, I'm making great art in here. Don't come in here at any hour ever. Yes. And they were proud of it. You know, they really thought they'd achieve something extraordinary. And, of course, when I met their children... Their children hated them with a million sons and had rebelled in every single way and were disgusted by it. Um, And also the art that they created was not that great. You know, Mm. it was uh, uh, self-aggrandizing, totally self-focused. 
Um, but there was certainly a lot of it. And I think there's no doubt that if you protect your time from everybody and from life itself, you will write those 28 novels or more and and maybe you'll win all those prizes. And But for me, it's not a... It's it's not about mothering versus writing. It's about life versus writing. And I I, I do ha- have quite a, not as much hunger as Dickens, but I like life. You know. Yeah. I want to be in it and to live it. And uh, I used to think, oh, if only I had all day long to write and read. But that life is a barren one. The way I would do it. Yeah. It would be something you wouldn't want to live, actually. So I'm, I'm glad I've been rescued from it. Um, you talk about. I, th- I think of this all the time, writing on a computer that's not connected to the internet oh, or just yeah. distancing yourself from the internet for a certain period of time. Yeah. And I find it impossible to do because there's yeah. always something I got to check, right. some idea I got to play out, um, and inevitably you go down a rabbit hole and you're like, yeah. I did 30 this, minutes doing this. This is my um, advice. I mean, it's not uh, everybody can do whatever they want to do, but uh, if you check this process you're talking about you, you there's email i know there's email and there's things you need to google and but uh if you just made a little note of all those things and didn't check them till say five o'clock you would do all that checking in 20 minutes it would take you 20 minutes to go through your email and google whatever it was if you do it all the way through the day you might lose three and a half hours because what's cardi b doing and then something blah blah, blah and kendrick and somebody blah, that's three and a half hours. What? So it's it's up to it's up to you. Like, what well, do you want to do with your time? How about what is this? What is this word that I'm choosing really mean? And is it really the right word for this? It, it's space? annoying. I bracket it and I think I really wish I could go online and check it right now. But it's worth it for me just to hold it there and come back in four hours and just check it so in just, what will be a thirty second operation instead of a day long Google hole. So you're just that disciplined? I, no, it's not. This it's just. Necessity, because I don't have time to waste. Yeah. I just don't have it. Um, I want to get more granular. Um, <laughs> what is the difference between a good sentence and a great sentence? Um, for me, a good sentence will do. The problem is between good <laughs> sentences and terrible sentences, which are everywhere. Um, so, so a lot of what's going on in the moment, even at quite high levels, is just... Uh, uh, mistaken usage like uh, my students laugh at me when I say you know most of what we'll be doing 14 weeks is just really correcting grammar and vocabulary because they consider themselves and they are brilliant young people but um, but something is going wrong in the schools or I don't know what's going on but people are not using language um, correctly it's it's way beyond are using it in a beautiful way or a flowery or interesting way I'm only interested in Correct. If it were correct, you've already scaled Everest as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I saw it like some, one of my publishers sent me a thing about this new book and it was on like a very respectable website and it was a little short review and it said, um, Sadie Smith who's gathered, gathered so much opprobrium throughout her career, but the word, that word <laughs> means, um, you know, disgust and hatred and they they thought it meant to, it's people literally using the mm. wrong words to describe <laughs> what they need to <laughs> describe that's that's really a problem for me but you you're kind of getting at something that I've tried to do or have noticed myself doing cuz when I got out of graduate school I thought um if I just write beautiful sentences the world will rush to my books and everything will yeah. work out and after a couple of years I realized nobody wants the beautiful sentences yeah. and when I got down to 
stop paying attention to the structure and the architecture and the prettiness of the sentence and just how can I directly communicate these ideas and get down to like the nub of the truth of the idea. Truth, that's what people are urgently in need of. That's the thing. Truth in itself is is beautiful, (laughs) to quote a very old idea. Um, And clarity is beautiful. Um, And uh, sentences, elaborate sentences can also be beautiful, but without a a sense of um, an urgency that you're really trying to convey something other than just their beauty. There's not much use in them. So if all the words are used correctly. Yes. And then, and then something is risked. I don't think there's any point in writing if you're not risking something. Um, the most obvious kind, I guess, today is, is revelation. People think the point of writing is to reveal something about themselves, maybe something hidden. or um, That can be true, but there are other kinds of, of risks you can take. Um, when you're really, really trying to tell the truth about something, it usually doesn't look too pretty <laughs> on you. You know, the real truth is usually quite hard to tell and, and doesn't often put you in the best light. And that, that kind of writing interests me. Um, a writing that dares to be, um, to say what it thinks, even in the face of a mass opinion on the other side. Um, a writing that tries to uh, get to the core of something without being swayed by fashion or uh, even important things like community. It's very hard to write opposite community. You know, community seems such a wonderful thing and you want to be a part of a community, but everybody can feel a part of something and also have that section of themselves which disagrees. Yeah. Um, and to express that disagreement can be hard. To challenge the community. Right. I feel differently. Right. Right, to feel differently. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids, and everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real, so I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. 
On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Yeah, it's, it's there seems to be no shortage of people who will say, I feel opposite all of you. Yeah, to, but that's not quite the same thing. Right, to make a name. Yeah, and it's usually a, a kind of self-aggrandizing thing, as if your opinion is, is a valuable thing in itself. I, I don't really feel that way. <laughs> you, you, you don't feel that way? No, I don't. Uh, you have, like, I mean, you, I, I mean, you are so humble. And 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 it's and and you've always been so humble. But I mean, like you do have like the I world have... saying, "Hey, we are curious in your opinion on any number of things." But for me, they have to be. Um, it's a difference between taking positions which are like uh, something that accrues to you, as if uh, you, I wear this great dress, I have these great shoes, I have these great opinions. That's not what I. <laughs> that's not what interests me. I'm interested in hearing people think about something. Really think it through, really discuss it. Yeah. But I'm not, if you have a selection of the right opinions or the wrong opinions, I, I, they're not um, commodities, you know? That's not something that concerns me. Mm. So, um, mm. well, nobody has, I mean, nobody, who, like, nobody's like, well, he's always right. Like, you no. know, you're right and you're wrong. And But, but there, there is a sense of establishing your identity by, through agreement or disagreement, just by, in any way, relating to this mass this group and i i when i'm trying to think about something i i'm just trying to think what is it i really think in, independently of of what anybody else is saying yeah. what is it i really think yeah. and what and what does it mean that i think that and do i think it because i want to think it is it uh, wishful thinking it, am i getting some advantage out of it you have to interrogate whatever you think a few times over what else is the, so you want to go good bad not good degree so what else is the difference between between beyond being correct beyond risking something the difference between good and bad writing in general um i do think like when, when i'm emailing if you have a wide uh, series of email acquaintances you might notice that there are certain people they could be doing any job in the world it could be your old aunt or who just they're the emails you immediately want to read that's called having a voice, and that's strange. It happens all over the place to non-writers, to all kinds of people. I'm always very curious about it. I open my email and I think, oh, there's someone I want to open first because the way they email, I, I want to read that. And there are other people who you'd rather die than read their email, but you know sooner or later <laughs> you're going to have to read the seven paragraphs with the ellipsis and the, you know, you know, you know what it's going to be like. So that interests me that there is something, there is an innate uh, 
gift for clarity in certain people um, who might never even consider themselves writers in a million years, but they have something there. Yeah. When they write, it's direct. You understand them and you and you feel the force of their personality behind it. So that's the part I think is that's hard to um, hard to teach. Um, but I, I like to see that. And um, yeah, a voice, I suppose. God, my son wrote something, some little thing for school, and it really had a voice. Right. And it had his voice. Right. And it was, he's a 10-year-old boy, so it was slightly obnoxious. But I'm like, <laughs> there's a voice here. Yeah, like, this is amazing that's that it like really leaps off the page and it sounds like you. Right. And like, I don't know if I agree with the point you're making, but I love the way that you constructed it. I was, right. and, and I was like, I don't know how you did that or how I can say, here's where it becomes voicey. But I think you know what, what I mean? it is, is, is a, um, there's a, the, the various kind of blockades people put between them and the writing are gone. Like when someone sits down to write, if they're self-conscious, they'll use a high register. Or if they want to impress someone, they'll say something which isn't quite true, but in a certain form. And there's a, Or they'll use language which is shop-worn, old language of adverts, bad movies, sentimental cards. All if you remove all that, then you have something. Mm. And it's just that some people remove it very naturally. They don't even think about all these various constructions well, that can be put on writing. I mean, this is... Kids particularly. This is the, the core of it, finding the right word. Right. Is the is right. the core of it. Right. And sometimes it can be incredibly important. Like in political arguments, you know, you can say so-and-so is the accuser that's one thing. But if you call them the victim, then you're in a whole other moral argument almost immediately. No? Versus survivor. Right. So th these things are not um, uh, neutral. It's incredibly important which word you choose, how you choose it, and to be aware of all the ramifications which come with that word. Well, sure. And to use a word that borrows too much from another language, right. takes you away, right. are all the other words right. Latin-based or you know traditional right. English and... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I find myself almost taking out each word and going, is this the right word? Can I have another word? Okay, that one seems fine. What about this one, right? And right. Like, so then imagine, uh, to me, thinking of hip-hop is doing all of what we've just been talking about mm. and then also making it rhyme right. and then also doing it like 20 right. syllables right. a line and then also having an incredible beat behind you and making people want to dance. It, to me, that's it's like opera in, in that it's a total art form using so many different skills simultaneously. I mean, we've seen hip-hop go from s quite often external, right, right. The, the ghetto reporter thing, right. to almost always I, I, I. Yes. And, and, it, and it's a fake eye usually, right. but like... Too many eyes, multiple eyes. Right, that it's, like, it's, it's almost entirely I did this, I did that. Or in, in the case of someone like Kendrick, it's become a fully established, like... Uh, world you could talk about kendrick world in which there are multiple voices operating and all kinds of different perspectives personal social ghetto reporter historian and that, that's a kind of new scale it's like 15 rappers in one man <laughs> do you like kanye i do i love kanye matter of constant argument in our house um Your I husband do. doesn't like him no i I, to I totally understand all objections to kanye as a person are they as an NC, but I, I was talking to my friend Dev Hines. Do you know that guy, Blood Orange? Yeah, I do. And we were talking about 
uh, I mean, I, I really am so uninterested in the Kanye as, as phenomenon and his wife and all that. I couldn't right. care less. But if you just talk about the albums, it's an unbroken run of masterpieces. It is. So really, that's all I'm really concerned is. with. It really is. Everything else about him, I can't explain. I can't explain any of his public utterances, his politics, his attitudes to women. I don't understand any of it. But if you're talking about those albums, there's nothing like it in popular music. I think it's unprecedented. You have to talk about Stevie Wonder to find someone it's, no, it's with like, that many. It's like Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon. Right. About so, like the first five albums are extraordinary. But they're all extraordinary. Even the ones where I used to think, oh, I'm not sure, and they're, they're all extraordinary. So. I think you could talk about Idiot Savant, but I don't think that's it. I think he's a man with an extraordinary genius in this area, and I I don't understand why that isn't enough. I don't need people to be upstanding citizens as well as as artistic geniuses. I don't care. I don't ask that of Picasso. I'm I don't I don't mind. Yeah. Uh, those are. I I would go to the map for those albums. Anybody who loves rap would sees their greatness, and the rest of it is the rest of it. It doesn't. I, it doesn't bother me, really. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, the last album I loved a lot, um, but the experimenting or tweaking the songs after they were released thing became very strange to me because I loved the songs in a certain way, yeah. and usually the tweaks would make me like them less. Yes, I. It's an excess of um, energy. I mean, it's also the medium to be allowed to to be able to tweak in that way. I, I think there's many a novelist who would like to take the book back off the shelf and do another edit, another run through. Of course. Um, I, I think it's a mistake. I, I think in the end, the album you create is the album you create, and, and I want to spend time in there. But to me, the last one is um, completely sublime and extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so... And and I suppose I experienced it like if, if you saw the Arthur Jaffa. So did did you see that? Which one? Arthur Jaffa, the artist, he used ultralight beam in various parts of that show, and I was listening to the album while also seeing Kerry Marshall or Lynette Yadenborough. It, it seemed to me all of this uh, a certain moment of kind of sublime black excellence, to use Jay Z's phrase. Yeah. And I just thought it was a wonderful moment anyway it feels a long way away now i mean you talk about that i mean i think about television it's an extraordinary moment for black right. television right you probably don't i watch. was also watching insecure around the same time as well, well yeah well i mean there's only like 10 great shows starring black people you know many created by right. black people it's a really extraordinary right. moment if you compare it to our childhood it's unbelievable uh. <laughs> it's really unbelievable. It's a great time. Um, and you write about Get Out in your new book. Yes. Yeah. I, I had some interest in Jordan before because I'd gone to see him and uh, uh, well, Key and Peele in L.A. Um, I, I loved I loved the movie and I loved writing about it. It was really enjoyable. And, I, and Jordan is amazing to me. It's, yeah. it's just an extraordinary... just metaphor and just discussion of like race and this I know it's so strange now that it barely feels like a movie anymore I I, I actually can't really imagine watching it again it's, it's become so embedded in the yeah. culture that it's like a mo monument it's that like you the, walk around and admire but yeah. but that's incredible that that should be true it's like the matrix right just subsumed yeah. into the collective memory it's a memory. really like, incredible thing even if you haven't seen Get Out or The Sunken Place like well, right right you know what that means and it's it's amazing news for everybody else because what it proves is that you don't 
that movie did not cost a lot of money. Mm. Um, you just need ideas and comedy's always been like that. Comic comedy movies are cost little and make enormous money, but Jordan has all the gifts. I mean, so funny, so smart, so much imagination. So I, it's just the beginning, I'm sure, for him. Um, dance lessons for writers. Yes. What do we as writers learn from Prince and Michael Jackson? Um, well, when I was writing about it, uh, I, have, I guess I have a long time fixation on Jackson for, I don't know. I was born in 1975. That's just what happened if you were born then. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and like all kids of my generation, I, I learned those dances and loved to do them. And, um, but I, Did but you I'm guys a, get the cartoon over there? Yeah, we got everything. We got everything. Oh, God, that was, that <laughs> but, was the um, best. But I'm a far bigger Prince fan, you know, in terms of yes. the, the music and the man and the art. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that when I had children, I showed them these Jackson videos. The, I was interested in the legibility of Michael Jackson. In order to be that famous, that successful, that remembered, there's something um, that has to be completely open and readable in you, you know, in all your movements. And Michael Jackson is that kind of dancer. He is a popular artist of the first order. Um, and I, I don't, I never uh, sneer at popular art. I've always loved it my whole life. But but Prince is an example of something other, no? Somebody who is, even though he's in full view um, and j just as famous as Jackson probably, um, is somehow hidden, you know. Not everything is I exposed to you. Um, both the music and the dancing feel like a strange secret that you and he no, and so whenever you go to a Prince concert, as I did maybe 12 times, you could mm. be in a stadium and you'd be like, who are all these other, mm. who, the, who the fuck are these people? It's meant mm. to be just you and me mm. having this moment. Then you realize that this very intimate experience you've had has been shared by millions. Jackson was never like that. Jackson's like having a Coca-Cola. You know that everybody on the planet is having one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. Right. That's true. It did feel like this intimate connection with Prince right. and that went back from always I, it never I, went I, I think I mean I was too young to really know what like sexuality was when right. Purple Rain came out but we had a sense of it right. and I remember feeling like my sister is way too much into this album <laughs> right. like I love this album but she loves it on a different level like what's going on there I, I mean all the teenage girls I knew were obsessed with him it was an offering of a kind of sexuality you couldn't find anywhere else you know that was interested in you but also on your side you know yeah it was likely to do your mascara and then do his mascara and then you both go out on the town yeah yeah that yeah. was a beautiful vision in 1987 <laughs> <laughs> um i always thought that women wanted you know like tough guys not like well, maybe they thought so together too, he, he brought he brought some news he brought yeah. <laughs> he brought some news um can you do things as a writer now that you couldn't do before, like, say, when you were doing White Teeth? Um, oh, that's a question. Uh, I, I think my flow's a little better. I'm, I'm, I'm much less eager to please, and that frees you up in, in different ways, you know? Be a little bit braver, a little bit bolder sometimes. Um, but then, conversely, there are things I did, I think, when I was young that I can't do anymore. Uh, like so you lose stuff, too. Like what? Um, 
I think I wrote, I'm not, I haven't read that book in so long, but my memory of it is that it's funny. It's really, it's funny. And part of its funniness is treating everybody like more or less a joke, you know? Mm. And I can't do that anymore. Mm. Life gets too hard Mm. and too painful. Mm. And you can't, I can't laugh. I really admire lifelong satirists and how they keep it up. But um, the objects of laughter in White Teeth, um, to me, would not not be funny. I wouldn't be able to laugh at them in the same way or resist from saying, well, yes, I know she's ridiculous, but what about this? Mm. You know, you start wanting to make it make more of a case for people and, and to and to make them human. And the joke relies on them not being too human. You know, when you talk about being braver, what do you mean? Um You know, when you're young, you, you, your sense of yourself is Im- important. You're trying to convey something or pitch something to other people, lovers, friends, or a public if you have one. Um, I, as you get older, as all old people will tell you, it becomes less important, you know? You just want to uh, live in truth and feel truth and, um, and be honest, even if, it's, uh, if, it, if it doesn't look so pretty, you know? I think that can make you braver. There's nothing more anxious than a, than a 23-year-old girl, you know, in a certain sense. She's so worried about everything, what everyone thinks about her, what she can say. Uh, older women, if you see a group of, like, yeah. black women in their 60s on holiday together, they couldn't give a shit about anything. Yeah. It's real freedom. I see it in my mother. She's just, she's way beyond anything like that. Yeah. She couldn't care what you think, what anybody thinks. She's just out for fun now. And I think it does make you bold. So what do you, I mean, I understand where you're talking about risk in a nonfiction context, but in a fictional context where you make up the game. Absolutely. And novels are always like that. That's a really good point. You make up the game. There's something uh, annoying about novels for that reason. I always feel annoyed when I'm reading a novel because the whole thing's been set up. Yeah. And it's all rigged. But and, And I don't mean that. In any negative way, uh, Native Son comes to mind as an extremely brave right. book, right? Um, so what does that mean for a novelist? I think of something like Giovanni's Room. This is a really good example. Uh, uh, Baldwin, when he wrote that book, he could have gone many different ways and pleased many more people, you know? He could have written uh, a kind of black power, Afrocentric novel and pleased a lot of people. He could have written a gay novel and pleased less people but a particular audience mm. he could have written another country again and got those white liberals on board instead he wrote a book almost calculated to annoy every single person <laughs> he knew everyone in his constituency his publishers his gay friends his white friends his black friends everybody mm. hated that book and told him not to publish it warned him not to publish it now it's beloved you know but people often forget um how hard it is to get to Beloved, you know? That book was despised, and he was despised. It took enormous guts to write that book, exactly because he had no hope of it being welcomed. That's the kind of risk you take. Mm. Even in that case, people often forget, I realize sometimes when I'm talking about it with people, people forget the narrator is a white guy. Mm. It's Baldwin saying, I, 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 but it's a white guy in that novel. He put himself in the opposite position and tried to imagine what that was like, and nobody wanted to read that book either. Now they read it. So those kind of risks that are um, against the grain of the political moment, against even the advice of friends, but have an urgency in them. He needed to write that book. He wanted to imagine what it was like to be a white, gay, American guy in Paris. He was interested in that perspective. He was interested in the perspective of everybody else in that novel. Um, He wanted to be in all those places against everybody's um, 
better advice. And I'm so grateful that book exists because it's an example of of what you can do when you don't give a fuck as the rapper. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so part of it, you're talking about aesthetic risks. Aesthetic but. risks, sometimes they're political. They're all different kinds. They can be about uh, voice, style, um, character. They can be many different kinds. But if there isn't something new in a novel, I remember reading Kurt Sear saying this somewhere as a young man in some journal. Um, he was saying it to Paul Oster, um, slightly fur- furtively, because he doesn't know if Oster will agree. But he says, you know, maybe I'm a snob, but as far as I'm concerned, if there isn't something new in a novel at some level, could be structural, could be stylistic, could be, then why have you written it? Mm. And I think that's fair enough. That's It's a high standard, but I don't see any other one you can apply. Um, so if I'm 25, 30, trying to get better as a novelist. Right. Maybe I wrote one, but um, give me, what do you want me to read? Um, what do I want, what do you want me to read to get better I, as, a, as a writer? I think the main thing is not to limit yourself in your reading, to read everything. That was the thing my mother um, impressed on, on me and it, it was such good advice, even though I kind of resisted it at the, at the time, you know? At various points when I was a kid, I either wanted to, I had moments of assimilation where I wanted to read all English literature because I wanted to be, you know, English like everybody else and normal like any other kid wants to be normal. Then I had other times of wanting to entirely read black American writing. I don't want to read anything else. You want to hear about anything else. Um, my mother was always insistent on the idea that, um, which she t- took from Baldwin, it's Baldwin's argument, that the world is yours. Mm. Baldwin said, you know, uh, all of black writing is mine, but Bach is also mine. If I'm a human, then all culture made by all humans is mine. Mine to take, mine to ingest, and mine to use. That was my mother's principle, and sometimes I thought it was apolitical or strange, or but but I think she was right, and it was a very good habit that she brought to me, because in our shelves there was uh, something of everything, you know. And even writers who we personally, she found painful, like she had a lot of Naipaul, and for a Jamaican, having Naipaul on your shelves is not easy because (laughs) there's a lot in those books which is directly offensive and cruel but my mother's opinion was this is a caribbean writer we are caribbean he's one of the great caribbean writers you're going to read him and if you find something in there you don't approve of or that is offensive um, there is plenty uh you're strong Mm. read it move on to the next page okay so can you give advice for younger folks um writing the the first advice is is do you really want to do this in terms of as a life practice because the one of the main parts of writing is the willingness to be alone for most of the day Mm. almost all of the day yeah and i just don't think that suits a lot of people understandably because it's really boring and you can have the same gifts like i think of my both my brothers i would say we all have exactly the same gift which at root is imitation we can do voices we can copy sounds and sing like other people or rap like other but it's just imitation we're like imitators it's the same gift if that's what you want to call it but we put it to different uses my brother likes people and company so he's a stand-up and actor he works with people that's what he does all day long my little brother is a rapper he wants to be around people he writes songs. He, he's collaborative. I want to be alone a lot of the time. And what I've, and the art I've chosen is, is for that. And so whenever I, I, speaking to young writers, speaking to my students, that's the first question I ask. 
Is this what you want to do all day? To be alone. To be alone. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. And, and fall back on yourself without interruption for six, eight hours a day, because a lot of people don't. If the answer is yes to that part, um, then to me it is about uh, taking in culture, art, books, music, film, everything. And, of course, living as much as you can as honestly as you can outside of uh, collective movements, dogma, shared ideas, just trying to live your own life. Um, <clears throat> you read Zora Neale Hurston as a younger person, talking about black women as yeah. the mule of the world. Yeah. And it had a negative, devastating, not devastating, but negative experience, negative impact on you. What because, was that experience? Because I knew it was true, looking at the history of my family. I knew it was true. But I didn't... I I wanted to break it, and I knew my mother wanted to break it for me, you know. Um, it, it It's different now, because I, I don't fear it anymore, but I mean, my brother told me I didn't go on this trip, but they all went back to Jamaica last year. I couldn't go. And my mum was insistent on taking my brother and his kids... Uh, to see where she grew up, and she was trying to find it. My, my family are real country people, so they got to the village and they started trying to get through the bush, and everyone was getting tired and hot and saying, Mom, you know, I don't think we're going to find it. It was a long time ago. And, and she was completely insistent. They're going through the literal bush, and then they found this uh, broken-down shack. It's a shack. And my mother said, this is the place. Wow. And my brother reported it to me, and I knew the stories like, you know, eight kids in a bed and, and no parents because the parents left for England, you know, so you're being brought up by a grandmother um but my brother said when he saw it he was it was really it, it's a lot to take on you know you, you have to do a lot of forgiveness because you realize however um harsh your own mother has been there was a reason you know she was trying to trying to get away from something try to change something mm. it wasn't easy it's not easy to be uh 
a fatherless child and a motherless child, which is uh, a long history in Jamaica, at least you know in my family. Going back a long way, there's all these motherless and fatherless children. So I guess when I was a kid, I, I wanted to respect that past, but I didn't want to be contained by it. You know, I was scared of it to a certain degree. And when Zora said that thing, I thought, yes, that's been true of the women in my family going back generations, but I, it's not going to be true of me, you know. And it already wasn't true of my mother because she was uh, so determined. Um, but I was scared of it, uh, and so I ran from it. And then when I returned to it, I just realized that it was a great source of strength, you know, of course. It's so obvious now, but, but um, suffering is not something to be run away from. And, and communities who um, have experienced great amounts of suffering um, have all this beauty, all this power that I just had to tap into, you know. That's what Zora did. Her writing is, is full of all that history. It doesn't run from it, doesn't shy from it. But it's also flowering in glory and beauty and music. And uh, so it, it's just a double gift, you know. Every mm. kid feels that. It's like, are you, in any circumstance, I'm sure. They, you can tell me about the pain. You can tell me about all the pain and you want to get out from under it. But then you come, you, you come back. You come back and see um, also what a glorious history it, it is. I, I mean, I know you, but I don't know your entire life. Right. Have you entirely escaped it? Um, but I don't want to. I was writing recently about a photographer, Deanna Lawson, a wonderful um, African-American photographer from Rochester who takes pictures of diaspora folk uh, all over the world. Jamaica, Haiti, Bronxville, Yonkers, wherever she is, she takes these extraordinary pictures, usually in their living rooms. Often they're undressed, these people. One of them's, in fact, on the cover of Dev's, one of Dev's albums. Um, and because of the nature of diaspora, a lot of these pictures are pictures of poverty, one way or another, because a diaspora is deeply embedded in poverty all over the world. Mm -hmm. That's one of our distinguishing characteristics for various obvious historical social reasons. So when you're looking at these photos, which are incredibly beautiful, and they really are of kings and queens, you know, in these debased circumstances. If you were to run from it, uh, what are you running from? Of course, everyone wants to run from poverty, but do you want to run from blackness simultaneously? No. Hmm. So th that's that's the part I find problematic, you know. To say you've escaped is to say you've escaped your people, your community, your background. You don't. That's not something I want to escape. Do you want to untie the binds between a community and poverty? Of course. You know, you want that to be historically no longer true. Um, but it's been a long time coming. Mm. And, I mean, one of the things I found when I came to America, which is completely different from an African-American perspective, I know, but I'd never come across such a large black middle class. I didn't know that that existed, you right, know. Right. To me, in America, that was the revelation to me that, oh, that there's something in between being, you know, dirt poor as, as my mother's family was and then you know getting by when you get to the second country there's there's a whole history here yeah um which i just was not familiar with and and that to me i had a lot of delight in that you know though i know it's completely different from the perspective you know of someone like ta-nehisi always lived here all his life for generations here but for me coming here the fact of ta-nehisi yeah. for example yeah was amazing yeah that there were you know Black intellectuals, black artists in every corner doing extraordinary work. Um, all those people exist in England, but it's hard to break through, you know. The country is resistant to the idea. And to be here and to feel it has at least some history, uh, that was important to me. And I think for all 
black children in Europe, America is, it is that place, you know, where the music came from, where the books come from, where the films come from. You look that way. So to be here for me was a great kind of rejuvenation. When did you come here? What year? Uh, I came first uh, just after 2001. I came to do the novel first, White Teeth in 2000, on a long book tour. And then I was in and out from kind of oh, 2002 onwards. It's inter- you describe America purely with, within this context, what you were just saying. Right. Purely as like so inspiring because I right. meet figuratively all these amazing black people right. and I see what's possible. Um, and that is real. Yeah. But then it's simultaneously a nightmare. Yeah. And yeah. especially since 01, yeah. there's been so much. Yeah. It's a um, and does that. But that's it. America is this extraordinary mixed reality. It always has been. From the very seeds of it, the ideas of democracy and slavery happen in a coeval manner. They happen together. It's, it's the kind of thing which will drive you out of your mind. And there's no small proportion of black artists, black intellectuals in this country who have been driven literally out of their minds. <laughs> I always think of Nina Simone. Like yeah. Nina Simone was, I believe, driven mad by America, mentally ill by living in this country. Um, so I, I, I see that side every day. And, and yet still there is the fact of Nina Simone. And someone like Nina and others who get to a, a crossroad where you can speak your truth or have a career, but right. you can't have both. No. And, and especially when you are an artist, some level of activist parent, you can't no. choose just close no. your eyes. Her life, her life was um, impossible. And yet she, she tried to live it, you know. She tried to be a good mother. She tried to be an artist. She tried to be an activist. She tried to find somewhere to live where she could breathe. She went to Liberia. She tried everything. But this country would not, I mean, they would and not she, let her live. And she was dealing with domestic violence they before that was a term. No. She was bipolar before that right. was a term. It's, um, it, it was an impossible life. And yet, you know, there's this incredible body of work. So, no, I, I don't... Um, I, I don't downplay the horror here, but I just am aware from my perspective that I I experience a lot of joy being here just because it was so new to me. Nina to me, Nina Simone to me, is the greatest singer ever. Yes, this me and my this, husband agree on. How there's she no, makes no gap. me feel, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, the depth of what she's able to make me feel is so powerful. No, she's incredible and... and uh, Nick is the biggest Nina fan ever. I always loved Nina, but I didn't know her the way he knows her. And um, so since we've been married, I've, I now f- think I've heard every single thing she ever recorded. And uh, also the way it weaves into Kanye's work is so wonderful. It comes back over and over and over. He uses her so many times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, he is some kind of almost fun house mirror version of in that his life is impossible. But I mean, he's made it impossible in various <laughs> ways himself. Yeah. But I see what he's aligning to, this sense of an impossible identity, this daily struggle, even though, and I can see why it outrages people when he uses those Nina tracks, she's talking about struggle and he's talking about, you know, they won't <laughs> let me wear jeggings in wherever, you know, it's absurd. <laughs> but structurally, it works musically. I understand the kind of connection he makes. Um, but yes, her voice, uh, m- maybe for me, uh, Billie Holiday slightly slightly edges her out. But that's entirely personal. I d- it's it, just it is. something about Billie it, does it, it for me. And, and Billie has that same, like, will slice through your heart. It's incredible. To, like, 
It's incredible. And I, I, when I think about all this advice about writing, um, one of the main ones, like when I wanted to sing, one thing which stopped me singing definitively were singers like that. I just thought, on the same principle, if you can't make it new, why would you want to be just a, a club singer with a nice voice doing impersonations of great artists? I couldn't stand it. So I, I think when you're choosing an art form, you're choosing the one that you think you have a sp- you can exist in, that you have a, there's a space for you. My God. You can maybe do a little thing which is new. If you tell that to young writers, they'll all leave. I don't know, man. Uh, you have to have that. You have to aim high. I love to sing, but if you can't sing, like, if you're not an artist, why bother? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a writer, you will always be number two. You can't get above Shakespeare. No, no, no. There's no chance. But, but you can make your little... It, it's like a... I've heard a beautiful metaphor from it recently from some writer who I now can't remember, a dead writer, an old writer, but about the idea of writing being a massive lake into which these tributaries feed. Yeah. And the tributaries are everywhere, and you can be one of these tiny little tributaries feeding this lake called literature. Yeah, oh, sure. And I always found that much more possible than music, where I just personally was overwhelmed by genius. I don't feel that in writing for some reason. But even as a black writer, you'll always be behind the visible man. Yeah, there's no, but I feel fine about, I like being part of that lake. Okay. I don't know why in music I couldn't believe in the lake. In music, all I could see was Stevie Wonder. And that just depressed the hell out of me. <laughs> and I can't compete with <laughs> no, that, no so point. don't bother singing. There's no point. He's not even, I mean. He, that. But there should be actually someone else who could make a very good argument for the idea of the amateur, the joy of amateurism, the joy of just participating in art because it's beautiful and pleasurable. I think that's definitely true too. Yeah, I mean, what yeah. is more well, there's nothing fun? Wrong with that. And actually, recently in my 40s, I've begun singing a little bit just because nice. I really didn't sing for 20 years and remembering, well, this, it's not just about, you know, making your place. There's also just the joy of of the practice, what of playing of, an instrument, of singing. Of What kind like of that. singer are you? Uh, I Just an impersonator. Like, yeah, I'm an impersonator. <laughs> I can do various people. Like what? Can you do um, Billy? I can do a good Ella. I'm not bad at Billy. Um, Give me a Billy. No, I'm not singing anything on this record. Give me an Ella. No, no, no. But, uh, that, <laughs> just I was a just, bar. No way. But um, <laughs> that's that's what I used to do. I did a good Sinatra when I was a teenager for some reason. I used to oh. do a lot of Sinatra. So crooning, I guess, is what I do. Bad yeah. crooning. Yeah. But no, I mean, it's like, sometimes I feel like, oh, we cheated the whole game because we like make it by writing. I just sit there picking words and moving them around oh, and what like, an incredible privilege yes like that's the, you, yes it's incredible look yes no we don't have to do actual i mean it's hard but there is there no, are way the, way harder lots of ways um i mean my mother just retired after 35 years of social work and child therapy and uh that's work yeah yeah it's work that that um kind of emotionally breaks you down over the years you know you're dealing with other people's pain directly not imaginary people real people every day um no i i um i do find writing hard but i but i am regularly blissed out at the idea that it's my it's my practice you know that i that i get to do it yeah yeah i think about all the history that you know who do you see as sort of kindred spirit, 
Like, do you see yourself in Billy or Billy Holiday or Zora or um, I, you know, I don't know who Marcus Garvey. I don't know who. I, it's not. It's people who inspired you. There's something, and, and I'm so many black women writers will say exactly the same thing. But something in Zora, the the she's quite ornery. You know, she's very uh, perverse and bad tempered a lot of the time, which amuses me. She's mm. not easy. That's what you would say about her. She's not an easy person, and I kind of like that about her. Toni Morrison also not an easy person. I like I like the idea of a, a black woman who who stands in her own space and doesn't is not always seeking approval from everybody. You know, when I read Toni Morrison interviews these days, I just feel there's someone who completed her tasks. If you're talking about success, to me, that's what it really means. Not winning a Nobel Prize, although I'm sure that's wonderful. And But she wrote the books she wanted to write. She completed them. They were great. She decided on her project. She finished it. And she was not distracted by anybody or anything. And to me, that is uh, success, you know? You mentioned that a couple of times, this notion of not needing external approval and just just doing what you want to do. That's the big freedom for you. you. I think that because in my, I grew up in a family of hams. You know, we were always looking for <laughs> approval, singing, dancing, acting, trying to get some applause. Um, and I think I've talked to my brother recently. Um, he come off a long stand-up tour, and now he's in some TV show. And uh, I, I, I am aware of uh, of our childhood preoccupation with applause, and I'm also aware at our age now that that it's just not about that anymore and that p- p- part of getting uh mentally healthy for both me and my brothers is realizing that uh there's no amount of clapping that is going to make you feel like a happy person that's not going that's not going to work i think all stand ups work that out in the end right like chris rock chappelle like they you're not skipping in the bushes cuz everybody clapped for you it doesn't i don't think that works in the end i think you need to find a firmer basis for your Happiness than that. Do you? Yeah. I think so. And I, I, I think I, personally. <laughs> I, I, I mean. <laughs> I think so. And I, I think it's in, in relations with others. Like, uh, ob- I mean, obvious examples, your children, your partner. But it's, it's uh, you know, that silly line from, oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to quote this, but from It's a Wonderful Life where it says, no man is a failure who has friends. This is the bottom line, you know. Genuine relations with other human beings before you die, that is, that's success, and and it's lovely to do good work and and feel rewarded for it. But strangers applauding you, it, to me, it's it's like a cocaine or something. It feels good for a few <laughs> hours and then it really doesn't. <laughs> Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Right. I mean, it 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 is like cocaine in that it does jolt you up, right. and you have an endless need for more. Um, but at a certain point, you go beyond it. And the greatest artists, like I just watched that Chappelle. Oh. Thing and I can see with Chappelle that you know when a comedian starts out, even when Chappelle started out, it's the laughter you need. Yeah. So you need it every twenty seconds, sometimes much less than that, and it has to be continuous. And there are various points in Chappelle's show, and it happens to all great comedians, really great, where the laughter stops because he's not saying anything funny. Right. He's telling you the history of black people in America, right. which lasted. I was ca- it was like nine minutes or something of total silence. In the end, comedians. They become contemptuous of laughter because 
if people are laughing everywhere you expect them to laugh, it's not funny to you anymore. Well, you, and you start hating them for it as well. Well, then you're a clown. And you're a clown. And Chappelle is no clown. And I think what you, as you get older, what you really want to do is make yourself clear and say what you want to say. And those passages in his stand-up, the historical passages, the bit about Emmett Till, oh. to me uh, were sublime. I don't know if you call them comedy. Whatever you call that yeah. is is great and it makes him great. His Bill Cosby joke <laughs> from the was like a year ago is oh, so amazing. Right. And to retell it would take about 20 minutes. Right. You know, it starts in this place. You don't even see it right. coming that it's going to. And it's so well constructed and it's so beautiful. It's extraordinary. And, I think at that point and with Rock 2, you're dealing with something like West African storytelling, actually. They're like griots. They're telling very long tales that the whole village is coming to yeah. listen to. And it, it's an ancient tradition and it, it's it's awesome to see. I mean, I feel I feel Chappelle has has. And at one time this would have been sacrilegious, but I feel like Chappelle has long gone past rock in terms of being able to no do stand up um, <laughs> just just no comment. i mean it's it's just so it's, it's different just, it's it's so Chris Rock still he'll make you cry with laughter but and dave, that's a very important part of comedy you shouldn't forget that part no it is dave is talking so much about himself and Chris yeah. talks about – in Chris's new one, he talks about himself and it's very powerful. Yeah, there's a divorce he, tour going on, oh, isn't there? Oh, yes. Oh, the divorce stuff is <laughs> very painful. And it's like you're not laughing for a good 10 minutes. Right. But uh, Chappelle, my God. I, I mean it's become so special, the work that he's it, – when it's working. It's amazing. It's working. I think the good thing is like when, whenever you have great artists like Kanye and Kendrick working simultaneously, it's – fun for everybody yeah the competition is healthy and interesting and i never i'm always saying to my kids they always want to know who's better like whatever we're doing for watching a musical for yeah. listening to it who's better is it him or her they want because i guess they hear me and nick constantly giving these bloody judgments yeah. of various books movies so they've become like little critics in their mind but when they put it so boldly the way children do i'm ashamed of it you know i'm ashamed of the instincts so i always say no no it's not about is judy garland better than barbara streisand these are different ways of being in the world and that's truly how I feel most of the time that you when you're invested in an artist you're in the stream of their style of their way of being and to be with rock is completely different than being with Chappelle it's a different feeling both personally if you've met them both and sure. also if you're listening to them do stand up it's a different way of being and you just have to be grateful for the variety and the quality of these different God. demonstrations there was a time when we thought about Chappelle's work ethic like what's up with that guy he hasn't done anything in ages and now he's done four hours right. in like two years right. it's extraordinary yeah, it's extraordinary and you know how hard it is to work up that material and deliver it at that level yeah yeah it's a great it's a very happy story because I there were maybe moments where you thought America was about to drive Chappelle mad the way it drove Enema but yeah. no yeah <laughs> Yeah, and he talked about that. I talked to him after he came back from South Africa, and he, I'm like, what happened? And, you know, he's all twisted up, and, like, he doesn't want to talk about right. it. But he's like, you've seen this before. Like, when yeah. Martin Lawrence got it, a big check and he happens. freaked out. When Mariah Carey got a big check and freaked out. Like, do you not see the pattern? But do you talk about that on this show, that what success means and how it isn't always the most wonderful thing that happened to a person? You know, we have not 
we I have tried to discuss success as a broad right. thing, right? It's not about money. It's not right. about awards. Um, you know, Nikki Giovanni was the third guest I had, That's not cool. traditionally right. successful, but extraordinarily successful. Right. Um, but no, I ha- I know, honestly, I have not gotten to the pitfalls of success or right. whatever or where it's not working or – I mean, is that a big – no, I just think it's That's very a, interesting. The Chappelle case is very interesting because it, it's so anti-American in spirit, right? Because yeah. the American principle is more money, better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but more money, more problems, which is, is an interesting kind of moral thread in hip-hop, um, which I love about hip-hop. And it's very rarely, you know, when you hear criticism about hip-hop, nobody ever mentions that. The hip-hop is full of the discussion of the prob- problematic of money. What do you do with it? Who do you give it to? Does your mama need it? Does your whole family need it? How big is your crew? What does it mean when you have does it? You your, have to move out together. Does that girl you like right. need it? Right. It's always about that in a way that the rest of American culture is pretty silent on the topic of what money mm. is meant to mean. And mm. So when Chappelle checked out, he's absolutely right. It's a long tradition of people asking themselves, what does the check mean in relation to the work? And the answer is always that the check is absurd. There is no um, price tag for, uh, you know, Oh, to a nightingale. It can be worth one dollar, it could be worth forty million dollars. It doesn't the money is is insane when it's attached to art. It doesn't actually make any sense, can't make any sense. If it's a it's a reasonable fee, you one can rationalize it, you know, and think of hours done and work done. I mean, one thing for me as a writer is that I always took all my opportunities super seriously. Right. And out of the group of like New York hip hop writers who came in in the early nineties. I was sort of like considered like the nerd. Like he always turns his stories in on time. (laughs) He doesn't turn them in like a thousand words over the limit. Like he knows the limit. He knows the deadline. Like he's such a nerd, right? We're rock stars. We show up a week late or two weeks late. I'm like, guys, you can't make a career out of showing up late all the time. But I didn't think that opportunity would just – abound especially for a black artist and to see dave walk away from 40 50 million dollars with Chappelle's show like hurt me because like how many times in life does a black artist get that sort of opportunity and he had that faith in himself and he could not have seen the coming of netflix no but he was able to make that up and then some and it's amazing i think most of us have never been brave enough to do it. But when people do things like that, there was a case in um, England of a kind of proto-anarchist uh, punk band who burnt a million pounds, <laughs> do you remember, in the 90s? Oof. Yeah, <laughs> burnt a million pounds and filmed it. And they came to regret it very much because, of course, later on you could do with a million pounds. It would just about buy you a house in London, maybe. But what those kind of acts do for the rest of us is release from us from the idea that money is at all times everything. It's an incredible act, public act, to do because it puts into, seeds in everybody's mind the idea that money can be separated from life. It doesn't have to rule every corner of life, decide every decision you make, control everything you do. That's what I thought of Chappelle, that even though it, I know it seems insane, it was an act of freedom, symbolic yeah. freedom. Yeah. And that freedom is passed on to all the people who witness it. Even the ones who say, you're crazy, are you kidding? I've, I'm suffering from pay to pay, you just turned back 15 million. But even those people, I think there's a little seed of joy at the idea that someone has released themselves from this bind 
that we're, we all seem tied by day and night. It is, it's almost like the 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 old Apple commercial, right? The 1984 Apple, like like there's one woman who's right. got the hammer right. who's attacking Big Brother, <laughs> right. but the rest of us are still sitting yeah, there. We're just sitting there, and so uh, you know, acts like that will always be accused of being publicity stunts or self-regarding, or but to me, it's just like little. Uh, Adverts for freedom, almost like imagine some other life, imagine another world. No, I would, I, I would love the courage to walk away from that kind of. I feel like as I get older, I have less courage yeah, to walk away from a nice opportunity because. Right. But the models of courage, sometimes they stay, you can't forget them. Like if you hear Muhammad Ali saying, "No Viet Cong ever called me nigger." Yeah. That you never forget it. Yeah. That moment of courage lasts through the last centuries, because he gave up almost everything for nothing, apart from to make a principled stand. These things always seem absurd at the moment, but they they radiate. I know you said you don't have a policy with nigga for your children, right? But do you have it for yourself? Do you yeah, say but it to colloquially? Me, to me, it's not. Um, to me, it's not complicated. There are two different words. I know that maybe people roll their eyes at it, but there is yeah. one spelt with an ER and there's one spelt with an A, which is yeah. the preserve of hip hop, which means never ignorant getting goals accomplished or Kendrick's definition, if you prefer it. And it has West African roots. So I, I don't I don't have any complication between those two words yeah. in my mind. Yeah. So, so, so do you just say, non- do you say nigga like, would you say, yeah, that's in my nigga. Britain, no, no black relative of mine, no black friend would ever... You, you don't refer to yourself. You might say cuz, blood, bruv, West Indian terms, but no one in my entire youth ever said to me, hey, nigga, that never happened. <laughs> it's just not a British, black right. British phrase. It doesn't, it doesn't Brits exist. Brits don't do that. Right. Brits don't do that. So for me, it's not natural. But I, yeah, I hear it every day in the street amongst people all the time. It doesn't. And people now say it to me, but I'm never I mean, bothered I have, by it. I have experienced so much uh, love from black men through that word. Right. Black men don't say I love you. No. Right? And I'm not talking about my father. My father was great at saying I love you. But I'm right. talking about my peers and the avuncular uh, and paternal men in my life. They don't say I love you. Right. But they might say, what's up, my nigga? Right. And it's like I can hear the love and I'm like, ah, I feel so good. And it, it's, it seems to me to have intensified the past 20 years. Like I can remember mm. in the 80s where it's still – because it was an endless – problematic in the papers do you remember I mean, people constantly arguing about this still still it's still going on but um the, the way that hip-hop it's as if you're reading you know 400 years of poetry certain words in it become radiant and that word has become more and more radiant as it gets used more and more times and more and more context <laughs> um so yeah but in a black british perspective it just i i I don't. I hear it a little bit in the grime now, funnily enough. You hear it more. But that's mm. very recent. Do you like Rick Ross? Yeah, I do. I shouldn't. I love Rick Ross. I do. I can't help it. That's just... I have no reason, no defense. I just like listening well, to Well, I mean, the music is incredible. Is it? His... I, I mean, just like his beats. His beats. He's not good. a great rapper, but no. he's sufficient. He's sufficient. But he... I mean, he would be a great A&R. Right. To find like the great, the greatest he, beats. He's just an amazing character. Makes me laugh. I like him. Are we okay? Is that your phone? Yeah, that's my phone. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's off. Don't worry. Wait, no, I don't care. You have this little tiny flip phone yeah. from like ninety six. Ninety nine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Does it text? Uh, it does, but don't try send me any 
pictures or emojis. Why do you have this little old phone? Uh, just it's the same. Just time. Just I think I'm an addictive person. I don't want to be addicted to a phone. I just I'm 42. I haven't got that much longer to live. I don't want to、oh, spend. Stop it. Twenty percent of that time looking at pictures on Instagram. I just, I'm just not into it. You are so good. I know it's boring, but I'm not into it. Cutting yourself off from the world, but and that's not, not in, the world. Not in a negative way. You're right. You're right. Not in a negative way. Well, well, but but Instagram, Twitter, these these are part of the world. I know, but it's amazing how much you can catch up with just reading、true. about in the paper or、true. on your laptop for ten minutes at night. Yes, that's true. But、um, but you have resisted. I don't want to say it in a way that's going to put you off, but you sort of. Are not engaging in these things so that you can have time for the core thing that、yeah. matters to it, you it, as an artist. But it's not. It, it, it's always defined because, to be honest, quite often when we're talking about this, I'm talking to ad- addicts more or less. Yeah. They kind of put construct the argument as if I have so much willpower. It, it's the opposite. It's that、um, I really am hungry for life, uh, uh, physical things, experiences, and、uh, the the face. Of the person thumbing through、yeah. Instagram on the subway for two hours, I just i i don't want. I'm not in. I'm not into it. Yeah, I'm just not into it. Yeah, and I can't. That's it. But I, I feel like、um, I'm not going to be alone much longer. I f- I feel things changing. People wanting more freedom from that、mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Well, so, if you, well, I'll still be here when you guys want to. When when you talk <laughs> when you as humans when you break <laughs> that seeking of approval from others, then you can. Disengage from social media because you're trying to get the approval of folks who you never see. I, I really, I'm, I'm just like everyone. I want approval, but I want it. I want the real. I want it in reality. Yeah. I want it at dinner. <laughs> I like. I want it in person. I, I really want to. I want it for real. You know. How come? How come children doesn't seem to be, or let me say, how come parenting doesn't seem to. Drag you off course as an artist? I don't know. Maybe I'm not that good a parent. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I, I um, I think Nick and I both come from backgrounds where、uh, you have a very strong s- sense of the good enough parent, which is a kind of、uh, it's a term from、uh, an English a psychotherapist, but. Our parenting, our parents were great and everything, but it wasn't like I wouldn't say it was overdone. You know, mm, <laughs> like mm. they had their own stuff going on. You have the sense. For me, there's a definition Freud makes between acute misery, which is trauma, horror, abuse, all the rest of it, and just ordinary unhappiness. And in his mind, ordinary unhappiness is what everyone should be aiming for. And that's all I hope for with my children. Just、oh, the ordinary、so、unhappiness、British. that I have, and that everybody has ordinary unhappiness. But the American idea where you have to like. You're like a kind of part-time circus clown, yeah. chef, yeah. full-time entertainer. Yeah, your children should never be bored. They should be delighted and doing incredible activities. Every. I'm just not. I don't see that. That's an important part of childhood. I don't understand that. God, I feel so guilty. They're not in an after-school program every need, afternoon, and I'm like,、be. am I screwing no, 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 up? No, no. They just. And also, I saw that a Norwegian writer Nasgard in the headline somewhere yesterday say. You know, misery might have a, its uses in childhood. It made me a writer, and I suppose everyone、mm. who does stuff like this does think, well, what what is it that happy children go on to do exactly?、Mm. Do they become bankers? I don't know what they do. I mean, good for them and everything, <laughs> but、uh, a little bit of misery is not the worst thing that ever happened to somebody. You know, I thought about that 
when I took my kids to the Black Smithsonian in, oh, yeah. in D.C. And my daughter, have you been? No, I can't. How do you get a ticket? You have to book months ahead. Oh, I can get you a ticket. Oh, okay. Cool. But it, 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 was, it was amazing. And in the bottom floor, it's chronological. It starts chronological. Right. And then it goes thematic as you get higher floors. And the bottom floor, of course, is slavery and the, and the coming here. And uh, it's harrowing. And my daughter was seven at the time, and she cried a lot. Yeah. And I don't want to sound too harsh, but I was like, good. Because I was deeply moved learning about the history of slavery as a kid, and it shaped me to say, I have to do something purposeful. Right. I can't just do whatever. Right. I have to have... Because I'm standing, I knew I'm standing on people's shoulders. Right. I would not be here if not for the sacrifices right. and deaths of other people. So now she's starting to see that lineage that she stands on, right. not just me and your grandfather, right. but like Harry right. Tubman, Sojourner right. Truth, etc. Um, but when is the right age? It is definitely the end of something. Like when you find out about the Nazis, uh, mm. I was about... 11. I mean, I knew of, of them kind of, you know, in England, you always know about them because they're part of your mm. issue, but I didn't, I didn't know about the concentration camps, I guess. I found out when I was 11. And I do remember that being the end of, end of something, the end of an idea I had about the world. It was permanently done. <laughs> and I, I wept a lot and I was really uh, broken by it, you know. And the, the experience that was twinned with that was reading Toni Morrison's The Black Book, which was a kind of... Mm imagined 300-year-old scrapbook, a commonplace book, yeah. kept by a, a black woman who would be about 300 years old. So it's, it's from slavery onwards, everything she would have kept, every souvenir. Um, and I, that was the book which had the fo- famous photos in America, I suppose, but I'd never seen them of, of uh, young black children on spits. Um, spits. Yeah, being roasted while people oh, God, yeah. sit around eating oh, God, yeah. snacks. yeah. Um, and I was about twelve when I saw that, and that was that was the second time I was. A certain vision of the world is is dies at that point. Mm. Basically, the world is benign, yeah. and that people are generally kind, and yeah. that war is an aberration, and not. You know, you have to give give that up. And I I am very torn now with my children. Of when is the right age to bring that news? Yeah. I don't know. And I, I'm kind of impressed by my mother. She she was so, and my father. They were so sure. That that I was ready for it, or it was the right time because I find those decisions much harder to I f- make. I feel like they tell us when the right time is. Right. Um, yeah, because you know how much information they're taking in. When Eric Garner was going on, my son came to me and he said, "You know, what does I can't breathe mean?" Right. And I started to explain it to him. He's like, "Well, I've seen the video. I was watching it over your shoulder. I didn't know he was oh, paying attention." And so now it's like, "Well, we have to have this conversation." Right. And I don't want him to walk away like hating white people because right. I'm not sure he's old enough at that point to understand, right. uh, you know, the entirety of it. But everybody's equal, but everybody's not treated the same. Right. And I think he got most of that. But it's also slapdash. Like when I thought about having children before I had them, I imagined this stately procession of history lessons and right. discussion on right. race. And it's so random. <laughs> like right. It's just whatever occurs to me that day. Right. And then something else. And then, oh, by the way, Elvis Presley and, oh, Tupac right. and Malcolm X. Right. And oh, it's just right. a random selection of names thrown at them. They're completely confused. 
those days. Well, I didn't realize that children's attention span <gasps> oh, is extremely short. You right. can talk to them like in each burst right. for like 10 seconds. Right. So even if you ask me a big question, I have 10 seconds <laughs> to give you the, to your like, okay, I, you've lost me. I'm flitting off back to my toys. Don't you have that experience with Martin Luther King Day that every year it comes around, you're able to give a little more of the story? <laughs> so the first time when there were three, it was just like, he was just this wonderful man. He believed in the equality of all people. Now, four years later, it was out. And by the way, he was murdered. Did they tell you that in school? <laughs> by a racist worse. white man. It gets worse each year. It's st- like it's not a celebration anymore. It's just like a terrible day of misery. Right. But yeah. So that happens. We'll, st- right, we'll, st- <laughs> right, we'll celebrate Malcolm X Day. Just make it easier. Oh, yeah. We said, I had that discussion with him this year. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah, so that started happening. And no, I mean, especially for the boy. I want him to know so that he, when he goes out in the world, he knows what he's encountering. Right. Not that the girl is not experiencing right. racism, but probably not risking her life walking around as early as he is. No, it's completely different. I, it took me a long time to um, understand that. I remember doing a joint interview with my brother when he started comedy for some paper in England. They were talking about our childhoods, and I, the journalists, you know, English journalists like to ask you things about if you come from an urban suburb or they like to ask you certain questions. So they asked, uh, you know, did you get picked up by the cops a lot? And I immediately said, no. And Ben was like, yeah, mm. all the time. Yeah. And I was like, I looked at Ben and thought, oh, yeah, he had a completely different experience. Was that maybe. not your memory? We didn't, he didn't, I don't know, he maybe didn't talk to me or he didn't tell me. He means like being stopped or being hassled or yeah. some, I just didn't, I didn't think about it, you know. And that's, that's when you realize that this is a completely divergent experience that my brothers were having from me but i mean that's always true of siblings right you re- you think you're in it together and then you become adults and realize it all kinds of things were not the same i mean well sure i mean it having a girl and talking to my sister a little bit differently now uh and understanding how early girls are sexualized right. by the grown men in the world right yeah. um is that something that you were dealing with when you were like 12? Um, well, I think I was uh, uh, protected by um, extreme frumpiness. And, and, <laughs> and, and now that I think about it, I think it might have been a conscious decision. Like I was reading something about anorexia somewhere recently. And the journalist who had been anorexic was explaining that for her, it was about removing herself from the sexual market. She didn't want right. to be... And so she starved herself so that her body was outside of the That's whole world. And I think in my own way, by eating a lot and refusing to in any way um, dress nicely or I just didn't want I didn't want to be part of it. You know, I wanted to be and I was left entirely left alone my entire adolescence because I just wasn't in I wasn't in that game. I was just not purposely. Well, I think now it must have been. I wouldn't if you'd asked me then I would have been like, oh, woe is me. You know, my glasses, my braces my crazy hair my weight my terrible clothes my but i think a part of it must have been subconsciously a way of staying in my child world and reading books and, and not being popular in that way i think so in high school you were like the nerd i, w- I was a total nerd i had good friends but i was not in the there's a separate universe of hot girls who were doing this and that and i was nowhere near that world you know it mm. just didn't come into my life at all Mm. Oh. Roxane Gay's book Hunger oh, she, that's a good example yeah oh. she talks about it too yeah. yes yeah. I mean, a much goes... more extreme yeah, version yeah. but um, I think 
girls when they get to 12 can find all kinds of ways of opting out you know some of them are really self-harming yeah um anorexia being the the key example i i've never been a very um self-harming person you know yeah. i'm quite addicted to uh pleasure so i i even though I was sad in my adolescence, I wasn't. Again, I call it. I would call it ordinary unhappiness. You know, I wasn't acutely miserable. <laughs> I had my books. I had my family. I had my friends, even if they were slightly freakish. And I, I, it was, it was fine. It was the world I wanted to be in. But you're not ordinarily unhappy now. No, now, now I am. Um, I, I think I have a lot of joy. I still am. Uh, my preoccupation when I was young was death it remains death i can't you know i can't god why t- because <laughs> people always say that as if it's not the only thing which is definitely going to happen to you yeah yeah uh, so for that reason i find it quite preoccupying and so it, it i would say it puts a limit on on my um not on my pleasure because i also think it's the only thing that makes uh, life meaningful i was at a funeral on monday you're going to be going to a lot more we both are this is my third in six weeks yeah and it was like... It's that age. you got to be kidding. I know, right? Right. In our 30s, we go to lots of weddings. In yeah. our 40s, we go to lots of funerals. Yeah. Um, that part... Uh, when I was a kid, I used to think, why isn't everybody running, screaming through the streets, given what's about to happen? Because mm. um, I thought we were very death-denying of the people I knew and the culture I came from in England in the 80s and 90s. Now... I don't think death-defying even begins to cover it. Now it's like death-obliterating. Now there are people in Silicon mm. Valley literally spending millions of dollars right. trying to work out a way not to die. Right. So that childhood mentality has spread up to the very highest echelons of government and uh, policy. So now I really, uh, I'm, I'm kind of amazed. And so when I'm writing, more than anything, I think of a memento mori, that writing should always, my writing anyway, has the purpose of always saying... And remember death. I think it's important that people remember it. It's important so that you behave in a civilized way with others, recognizing them as beings that will die, and, and also that you behave reasonably in the world. I mean, it is, the, it is incredibly humbling when you really come face-to-face with mortality. Like, yeah. I know at that funeral I was at, there were people who did not like each other in life right. who showed up and were like, hugging, smiling, right. let's trade numbers, let's like reconnect right. cuz like whatever right. we bickered about doesn't 10 years matter. ago it, it don't, so doesn't matter. Everything will come to nothing, literally everything you do. Um <laughs> so so for that reason uh when we were talking about success earlier to me it is defined by the completion of certain tasks even though you know they're going to come to nothing. That that's as much as I can imagine, just completing it to my own satisfaction. I have a before have, the inevitable. I have a idea of the answer to this question but it's something i ask everybody right um what is it about you personally that has led to the success that you've had oh um i i don't um i don't reflect on that very much i uh, i if i think about my my family in general, I, I suppose we have a lot of willpower one way or another. Mm. Um, that's definitely helpful. There, but, there are much brighter and brilliant talents. I come across them all the time who aren't as pig-headed as, as me. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I thought 
hoped that you would say. It's what yeah. I've heard that you have this willpower right. that's pushing you in the in the right direction. I I think so. I mean, it's there's another kind of talent like we're talking about Nina, where it's just genius and chaos is in its wake and everybody's weeping and the children are ruined and every it's disaster and chaos everywhere you look but but there's no replacement for what someone like that has that to me is the highest thing mm. I, I don't even uh aspire to that i just want to make good work <laughs> that's it <sighs> you see what I'm talking about? Do you see the brilliance, the fun, the cool, the humility, and yet a woman driven by an iron willpower to read and write, to protect her creative time from any and all distractions? So important and so impressive and so hard for me. To know her is to admire her. Lots of gems in this one. Thank you for listening and thank you, Zadie. For your time and your openness. I'm on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Please stop by and say hi. And if you like the show, please subscribe, rate, and review and tell a friend who you think would like the show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Chris Colbert and Matt Ford with help from Shelby Royston and in association with Cadence 13 Studios. We're beaming to you from the amazing borough of Brooklyn, baddest place in the world, and we will be back next Wednesday with more knowledge from successful folks because the man ain't shut us down yet. Join us next Wednesday when my guest will be Susanna Melvoin, who was Prince's girlfriend before and during Purple Rain and became his fiance around Under the Cherry Moon and yet never married him. This is part of her story of the moment when Prince proposed. He asked me in Paris, he was like, I, I don't really... I need to talk to you. And it was, sun was coming up. It was beautiful. We were staying in the Crillon Hotel in Paris and overlooking the Arc de Triomphe. It was beautiful. beautiful. So, sun's coming up in the morning, just barely. He wakes me up. I, I want to talk to you. He just looks white. I mean, just pale, pale. I, are you okay? What's the matter? I need to talk to you. Okay. So we go out on the balcony and he's taking his time. Um, I don't really want you to be in the film. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, wow. Um, and I'm kind of look at him and he says, I want you to be my wife. And I say, oh, what? Hear the rest next Wednesday on Torre Show.